2: In this, our final podcast on houses and museums, our host Derek O'Reilly visits eight of London's finest, starting in Mayfair at the house where Handel and Jimi Hendrix lived. Derek uncovers the Freud Museum in Hampstead, where Sigmund Freud lived with his family in the last years of his life. Six other gems will also be
3: revealed.
4: I'm Michelle Aland. I am the chief executive of Handel and Hendrix in London. It's a great example of Georgian architecture in central London. We like to consider it a hidden gem of Mayfair. And what's amazing about it is Handel lived here for 30 years, so fans of Handel can come here and really take a a pilgrimage to see where he worked, he performed, he rehearsed the operas. He probably wrote over 30 pieces while he was here. So he was a great musical innovator, a great composer. We have the music room. What's amazing about the music room is he actually performed the Messiah in the room. He would rehearse his operas, he would have neighbors over and have recitals for the neighbors. I love the Kirkman harpsichord, was just uh, loaned to us by the Warburg family. It's a beautiful historic instrument, which you don't see often. And then also his bedroom, um, where he would have lived and he also died in that room, so it's, it's quite historic you can sort of take time travel. So you step out of the hustle and bustle and you have this lovely Georgian home. So you suddenly step back into the 1730s, which is an amazing feeling. And then you go up the creaky stairs and all the original floorboards are here. And then you step into the 1960s when you hit the Hendrix part of the house. The blue plaque was outside uh, when Jimi Hendrix lived there. So Hendrix was his neighbor a couple hundred years later. We love to think of it as a house dedicated to music. In the 1960s, uh, Brook Street was lively and lots of fashion, lots of music. It was a perfect place for Hendrix to be. Between all of the photographic evidence and also the, the living memory of Kathy Etchingham, his girlfriend at the time who he lived with, we were able to recreate the space 99.9% exactly as it was. We had um, a delivery man who worked at Love's Cafe, Mr. Love's was right below, and he came in. Um, he was 19 at the time delivering food, and he came in. And he he had to sit down, he said, this is surreal, I'm just having a flashback to being 19 years old and walking into this place. Hendricks had three vinyls of Handel. Um, and he really loved um, the Messiah and the Hallelujah chorus, he loved as well. So he was a fan. Handel was German, Hendricks was American, and they came and they found their fame and fortune here in London. So London really gave them sort of their success. It was a long period to put the house together, a long period, a process of love but everything has been painstakingly restored so fans can experience it as it was.
2: Situated just off the King's Road is the home of Thomas and Jane Carlyle. Thomas was a Scottish philosopher, satirical writer, essayist and a historian, and is one of the most important social commentators of his time. The kitchen in the basement maintains many of its original features such as the stove and the original bed that the maid would have slept in. If there was more than one maid, the other maid would have slept in the space underneath the dresser, which is where the saying left on the shelf is thought to have originated from. In Carlisle's day, this would have been a working area where meals would have been prepared and the washing and all the cleaning would have been done. On the floor above, we have Carlisle's front parlour, you can find the original sofa that Carlyle and his wife Jane would have sat on and entertained their guests. It is very likely that Frederick Chopin, who visited in 1884, would have played on this piano. The piano was also used for a more practical purpose. In a letter from 1860, Jane describes how the household keys were locked up in the piano for security when she and Thomas were both away from the house. We also have in this room the books of the French Revolution which Carlyle wrote himself in three volumes. The first volume he gave to Stuart Mill to read, whose maid accidentally destroyed them. Mill offered to pay Carlyle for this mistake as he had to completely rewrite them again from the beginning. His history of the French Revolution is said to be what Charles Dickens used as a basis for the tale of two cities. In this room is hung a picture of Frederick the Great, which Jane bought for Thomas from a second-hand shop. Advertised as a picture of Peter the Great for seven shillings and sixpence, Jane told the shopkeeper who it actually was and only paid six shillings. Among the original features is a screen which was made by Jane Carlyle herself in 1848. It contains over 400 pictures which he collected from various people, including John Forster, Thackeray, and Thomas Carlyle himself. To mark his 80th birthday, Thomas Carlyle was presented with an address signed by a broad range of his admirers, together with a gold medal. Among the many distinguished signatories are Robert Browning, the poet, George Eliot, whose alias was Mary Ann Evans, and Charles Darwin, who spent a lot of time visiting the Carlisles. Another room containing many original features is Jane's bedroom. This little bed is the bed Jane was born in and the bed she had as a child. Jane Carlyle is considered to be one of the greatest women letter writers in the English language. One of her more famous quotes
5: is it not curious that my husband's writing should only be completely understood and inadequately appreciated by women and mad people? I do not know very well what to infer from the fact.
2: Jane Carlyle in 1837. At the top of the house is the soundproof study that Carlyle had built. It was in this room that Carlyle wrote his history on Frederick the Great, which took him 12 years to complete. His desk is where he wrote most of his works. It is said Jane spent a day getting the ink stains off his desk and is quoted as saying,
5: Perhaps one shouldn't get rid of the ink stains of a great man's desk.
2: The room has on display letters from Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister of the day, offering Carlyle a title and a pension. Carlyle was to decline this offer, stating that the pension should go to somebody who is needier of it. Within the bookcase are some of the books that Thomas Carlyle used in his research. Many others he gave to Harvard University. Like most of the house, the garden has been kept as it was when Carlyle lived here. Carlyle referred to the garden in his day as his sooty little patch, which today we know was due to the high pollution that London suffered during the period of their occupancy. As is the case today, many famous people have lived in Hampstead. My next stop was the home of one of the most famous people of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud. I'm meeting with Carol Siegel, director of the Freud Museum.
6: This is the house that Sigmund Freud settled in with his family in 1938 after fleeing as a refugee from the Nazis in Vienna. In this house, he was also able to bring... Uh, most of his possessions, the famous psychoanalytic couch, his collection of antiquities, his library, his textiles, all here in this North London house. People are often surprised, they don't realise that Sigmund Freud actually finished his life here in London. So the heart of the house for visitors is to see Sigmund Freud's study as it was set up uh, when Sigmund Freud moved in here. It really does take you back to kind of turn of the century Vienna. It's a very atmospheric space, very evocative. A lot of people say they feel as if Sigmund Freud has just walked out of the room, you know, his glasses are still on the desk. You know, over 2,000 objects that he collected all there in the room. You see not only the famous study, but there are quite a number of other spaces in the house. So, you know, this wonderful hallway. As you come up the stairs from the ground floor up to the the first floor, there's a big wide space, uh, which gets lovely uh, late afternoon sunlight. Martha Freud, Sigmund's wife, and Minna, sister-in-law, and Anna, his daughter, used to sit in the late afternoon and chat, look out at what was going on in the street, mull over the day. I should also mention Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's youngest child, who was the only one of his children who actually followed him into psychoanalysis. The museum does actually have a room dedicated to Anna Freud as well, and she's a very important part of this story and the story of this house. The museum has a very active public programme now as well. What we're trying to do is look at life through a psychoanalytic lens and explore Sigmund Freud and Anna Freud's legacy. And an important part of that is the education programme. It's quite innovative, it's very different from, from ones run in other museums. It's very much about encouraging pupils to kind of think for themselves, to explore some interesting ideas and perhaps to get over some preconceptions about Freud. There's almost always an exhibition by a very interesting contemporary artist and someone who is responding to the house and the collections in it. At the moment, we have an exhibition by an Indian artist, Bharti Kerr, and her work is woven through the house uh, in with the permanent collections. And included in the collections, we have some interesting artworks ourselves. There is uh, one piece by Sigmund's grandson, Lucian Freud, which he gave to his aunt, Anna, and which hangs in the dining room. And we also have a portrait of Freud by Salvador Dali, who was one of the other visitors to him in London in 1938. It's a fascinating small museum, it's in a beautiful house. It contains some wonderful collections, including perhaps the most famous piece of furniture in the world, which is the original psychoanalytic couch covered in this beautiful uh, rich Persian carpet. Learn more about Sigmund Freud, who whether you agree or disagree with him was one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. Plenty to see and plenty to enjoy and all in the atmosphere of a very welcoming uh, family house.
2: Tucked away on May Street is the Last Tuesday Society and my curiosity has got the better of me. So I'm off to find out what this is all about.
5: Hello, Derek. My name is Victor Wind, and I'd like to welcome you to my museum of curiosities, fine art, and natural history.
2: Well, Mr Wind, thank you for having me here today on this delightful mocktail. I wish it was something stronger, but obviously I'm driving. On my travels around the East End, I have been to some truly amazing places, but I've got to tell you, this takes the biscuit. It's absolutely incredible. What's the story behind it?
5: Well, over 10 years ago, I opened this place as a, as a curiosity shop because I couldn't find a proper curiosity shop. It was a curiosity shop and, a, and an art gallery. People come, they come to a shop, they walk around, they leave. It, it, it wasn't particularly enjoyable. Whereas I wanted people to come and, and spend as much time as possible and to enjoy it more. I wanted to create a classic you know, cabinet of, of, of wonders. Everything that glistens and is marvellous and fills me with, with joy and happiness, I've I, I put it in, in a cabinet. It's, it's the story of, the, of the, in, the inside of my mind. How did you collect all of this stuff? It's it? yeah, every child collects the seashells they find on the shore, the pebbles, the toy soldiers, and I'm afraid I've never grown out of the childish desire. Do you have any regular events that are held here? I mean, I do a, a guided tour twice a month. I do a, a storytelling evening. We have cocktail masterclasses, we have lectures, and once a month we have a petting zoo with pythons and tarantulas and scorpions. And they come in and people get to, get to know them and, and stroke them and, and pet them and, and feed them. Uh, we also have taxidermy classes.
2: Taxidermy classes? Yes,
5: I run the the British Academy of Taxidermy, which is the largest taxidermy academy in Europe. We have two or three classes a week. Everything from stuffing a mouse to stuffing a fox or a deer or a goat or a crab. And people can book to come to these courses? Yes, they sell out quickly. I can imagine.
2: What I find fascinating is downstairs is the museum, and upstairs where we are at the
5: moment is a cocktail bar. Having a cocktail bar where people can come and drink the finest cocktails, I think it increases the enjoyment and the same because upstairs in the cocktail bar we have the art gallery. But if you go to a a museum or an art gallery, I think it's terribly dull. The idea is here you can come and you can sit down in a comfortable chair, you can have some good drinks and you can really get to experience and, and spend time with pictures. The idea of the museum was of a place where all the, the odds and bods and the strays and the people who don't quite fit in can come here. We, we welcome those who are interested in the, the other side of, of life.
2: Well, it's certainly a fascinating and riveting place. I'm almost lost for words at some of the exhibits that are here and I will certainly be making a return journey.
7: Welcome on board. My name is Troy Richards. I'm the chief exec for the Golden Hind Trust. Golden Hind is a faithful replica. We classify it as an A class replica. And the reason why she was built is because the original ship was the first maritime museum decreed by Queen Elizabeth I in 1581. Sadly, they didn't know how to maintain her and she rotted away. Um, hence, Golden Hind II was completed in 1973.
6: And this is the same. And this,
7: this is yeah, the this replica is re- itself. Brilliant.
6: Why is it called the Golden Hind?
7: Back in 1577, uh, a fleet was sponsored by Queen Elizabeth I and a number of investors. One of them was Christopher Hatton. Now, during the voyage, Christopher Hatton sent Thomas Doughty to oversee his investment. He tried to take over the Golden Hind. Drake found out before the mutiny took place, beheaded Thomas Doughty, now, because they're very superstitious, they believe if there is mutiny, or about to be mutiny on board the ship, you must change the name of the ship. So hence, Drake came up with this clever idea of naming the ship off Christopher Hatton's crest, which had this female deer, and hence it was called, not the Pelican anymore, but the Golden Hind. Oh,
6: so the Pelican was the original name? Pelican names. was
7: its original okay. name.
6: So tell us about the colours used on board, because it doesn't really look like a traditional English ship.
7: So when the ship set sail back in 1577, it set sail in English colors. Um, uh, Colors, pale, gray, green, and what we call today magnolia. Now, Drake used Spanish colors as a means of disguising the ship. So black, yellow, and red, those are uh, typical Spanish colors. Set sail in 1577, came back in 1580, Uh, The voyage lasted for two years and ten months, almost three years. three years, wow. Very, very long voyage. They would have carried um, pigs, sheep, goats um, for milk, Mm -hmm. um, chickens. And where would they have been kept? And that would be on the same deck with the men, um, so on the gun deck. Comparing it with the Spanish ship, uh, so the building next door is a perfect example of the size of a Spanish ship. Wow, so you're telling me this boat would have taken on something as big as that? Exactly, the main advantage it had was uh, the speed. Even though there, there was hierarchy on board the ship, uh, Drake tried to actually get them working together. There are officers and barber surgeons. The barber surgeons were the barber and the doctor at the same time. And the gunners are the one that effectively keep the ship mobile, they were the one that Uh, fought during battles, lift the anchors, lower the sails, etc. While they were at sea, they counted 80 men. So 80 men were on board the ship at the time. You talked about the gunners. How many guns are on board the ship? So on the gun deck itself, we had 14. They're not cannons, they're minions. Now, the minions' guns were designed to paralyze ships, so not to sink them, but to paralyze them. They were generally aimed to shoot the moss, and if you if you damage a mast on a ship, then the ship will become paralyzed. Right. So it was a bit like piracy. It's a bit like piracy, I would say. <laughs> but the English him as a privateer.
0: Ah, I see, not <laughs> a pirate,
7: a privateer. He was the first captain to circumnavigate the world. Magellan, the Portuguese sailor, is actually credited to be the first captain to have done so. But Magellan didn't make it around the world. His ship did. Um, Magellan died in the Philippines. So, Drake was actually the first captain who had set sail from one country to another. Wow. Drake, in fact, died on board the Golden Hind oh, um, from dysentery uh, just off the coast of Panama, and he was buried in a lead casket. The next few years actually are quite significant years for us. Um, we'll be celebrating the 440 years wow. of Drake mm-hmm. circumnavigating mm-hmm. the world. Wow, um, so, obviously, a three year voyage. We will start our celebration in 2017. And carry on until 2020. Troy, no. it's been absolutely
2: fantastic yeah. and really interesting to be on board the Golden Hind. We wish you good luck. <laughs>
1: Thank you very, very much, much indeed, Thanks, Troy. Troy. Nice of you today.
2: Moving north to Kensington is a house whose exterior belies its
3: extravagant interior. Senior curator Daniel Robbins. Well, Leighton House was built by the artist Frederick Leighton. He started it in the mid-1860s and he lived here for 30 years. And over that 30 years, he was almost constantly embellishing or extending the house in some way. So it started relatively modest, but by the time he died in 1896, it was referred to as a private palace of art because he'd created this extraordinary environment and it was crammed full of the collections of art that he'd, he'd gathered and amassed. The outside of the house, exterior, is very unassuming. You would have really no idea until you walk through the front door of what you're going to discover. And inside you find this amazing suite of rooms that were designed by him, working closely with his friend, the architect George Aitchison, and then arranged through those rooms are uh, uh, paintings, sculpture, uh, carpets, furniture, all as closely to how he had designed and presented the house as, as is possible. Leighton's career had started in 1855 when he sent a picture as a complete unknown to the Royal Academy for the summer exhibition. And Prince Albert um, suggested to Queen Victoria that she should buy it. So she, in fact, bought his debut picture, which was an amazing start to his career. And he really was on good terms with Queen Victoria throughout his life. Uh, She visited the house here in 1859 and she recorded coming... To see him in her diary. So, sort of key moments in his life were connected in different ways to the royal family. And when he died, um, Queen Victoria gave her personal blessing that he should be buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. And that was a sort of really a national event. One of the most extraordinary additions that was made to the house was what we refer to as the Arab Hall. So, this was built at the end of the 1870s. And it really seems to have been built to accommodate the collection of tiles that Leighton had collected, most of them coming from Damascus, but there were other Turkish tiles involved. And he'd visited these regions and been collecting material from them and had something like a thousand tiles, and most of them dating from the end of the 16th century to the beginning of the 17th century. So he seems to have built the Arab Hall as a means of displaying and housing that collection of tiles and to show them in a very evocative atmospheric setting the centerpiece really of the house was this huge painting studio that was built it was a very heavily furnished um, and imposing uh, reception space as well as being a working room partly it was to impress so if you came to call on him you had the experience of entering this extraordinary house climbing the grand staircase and then entering this huge studio where he would be at work and would would greet you so Part of it was to show what a serious artist he was, but there were practical reasons why it had to be so big, because Leighton often was working on very large pictures, so you simply needed a big room in which you could work on it. When Leighton lived here, he had a very diverse collection of ceramics and textiles and furniture, all arranged through these rooms. And very sadly, all of that was sold at Christie's in the summer after he died and was dispersed all around the world. And we know how far it was dispersed because in 1997, we were contacted by somebody in Melbourne, Australia, who had just bought a cabinet. And inside the drawer was the Leighton sale catalogue from 1896. So they wrote to the museum and sent a photograph of this cabinet saying, does it have any connection with Leighton House? And of course, in all the photographs of the rooms when Leighton lived here, it's immediately recognizable. And in the end, It wasn't presented back to us, but we were given the opportunity of acquiring it. So that particular piece of furniture has literally gone all around the world and come right back to exactly where it was in 1896. We know a great deal about what was originally here, and so we've been able to borrow things and find facsimiles and similar things and particularly he was interested in ceramics. He had a huge number of iznik and um, blue and white china. And so we know in many ways, in fact, that even the decoration and the form of the house, he, he conceived it to display particular objects and groups of objects. And definitely in the dining room downstairs, that was where he principally had his collection of plates of ceramics on display. It was almost like a little museum. Each room had a character and a theme of what was being displayed within it. The first exhibited piece of sculpture he produced was in 1877, so he was um, already 47 years old. But the few pieces he did exhibit had a lot of influence on a younger generation of sculptors. And in the room here, in the silk room, is one of his sculptures called Needless Alarms, which uh, shows a girl being needlessly alarmed by a frog that's standing at her, at her feet. But it was really essentially as a painter that his career was, was based. We do a lot of education work. We run every year an annual schools art exhibition which is open to every school in uh, in the borough. And then we have visits from schools uh, to see the Arab Hall and to do art activities within the house. And it's also a great way of introducing the idea of Victorian life and Victorian culture and the place that artists had in that world and the fact that this house doesn't in any way really conform to what many people think of a struggling artist living in a in a garret somewhere. This uh, suggests a very different place that artists were able to enjoy when they were successful at that time.
2: My next port of call is the Ragged School Museum, which recreates Victorian life in and around the East End. At the heart of the museum is the classroom, and each year up to 16,000 children come to experience life in a Victorian school. Equipped with desks, traditional blackboard and the dreaded cane, the room has been faithfully recreated as one of Dr Bernardo's original classrooms, as it would have appeared when the social reformer arrived from Dublin and set up the first free school for poor children of the East End. It's a really interesting place to visit, and I managed to leave without getting any extra homework.